1: Oh man, I can feel it. The regular season is going to be back. I guess I shouldn't call it the regular season. The seeding games. Sorry, NBA. We got to get the terminology right. But basketball is back. and This is really going to be st- such a sprint now with the two weeks of seeding games and then crazy playoffs, four games a day. I, I can't wait for it got to do some news that's piled up and then danny and i are going to finish up our reports on the young players looking at the pels and the spurs which are fascinating and the rockets which are slightly less fascinating i do however have a massive massive announcement this is maybe the coolest thing that's happened to us so far in our careers danny and i are going to be actually for real announcing nba basketball games on nba league pass it's going to be available in the nba app I don't have a link to it yet, but even if you are not a League Pass subscriber, you can purchase that one individual game. The games are Brooklyn and Orlando on the first full day of action, Friday at 2.30 Eastern and 11.30 Pacific. Perfect timing, actually, if you're in Europe. We're going to be available for international listeners as well. So it's prime time in Europe. And then we've got another game going as well on Monday. That'll be... Sixers and Spurs at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific. Uh, that'll be on Monday. So if you've ever wanted more options for announcers this is an experiment for the league they basically have never done this before to actually let us cast the the game all of it's going to just be in one window if you're a league pass subscriber you already get it or you can purchase the game and the link's not available yet but i will have a link in the next show that we do i'm actually going to do one more episode before thursday now so there'll be a link to that in the show notes obviously on twitter we'll have it available as well but this this is your chance to tell the NBA that you really like the work that we're doing. That not only us, but other people as well should get chances to broadcast NBA games. If you ever watch the NBA cast, this will be pretty similar experience to that. So Danny and I, we could not be more fired up for this. It's an incredible opportunity. We really appreciate that the league is letting us be on the vanguard of this. It's something we've been working towards basically since the moment we started the casting back in October of 2016, and the hope is that this can become a regular feature. But of course, that is going to rely on you all to actually watch this thing and convince the league that this is worth doing. So once again, that is 2.30 Eastern on Friday, Orlando, Brooklyn. Looks like Jonathan Isaac might actually play in that game too, which would be cool. And then Sixers, Spurs, 8 Eastern on Monday in the NBA League Pass app. Let's get to the aforementioned news now. There's been concern that there's not enough transparency in terms of injury reporting, and the NBA has done something to address that. At least before 5 p.m. on the day before the seeding games, NBA teams now must designate a participation status for players in a league portal that goes down to five hours prior to tip in instances of back-to-back games, which there will hopefully be few of. But that's one of these statuses will be self-isolation if there's a potential for COVID-19 exposure or if someone is returning from an absence. And of course, there'll be the usual injury absences as well. We can catch you up on some of those absences. of Zubac has arrived as I'm recording this. He's actually playing in a scrimmage game right now. Still haven't had any word on Landry Shamut officially, but apparently he is in Orlando and is going through his quarantine period right now marcus morris uh, of course uh, is back for them more drama though as lou williams left the bubble to attend the funeral uh, of one of his mentors but was photographed on social media going to a strip club where he claimed he was just picking up wings but the nba has reacted to that i think the optics of it uh, are not good and if players are going to have excused absences yes lou williams tested negative every day but because of that they decided that he has to have a 10 day quarantine and presumably that will also involve the nasal pharyngeal testing the more invasive testing but fortunately for the Clippers their schedule in the seeding games is exceedingly easy and they're going to be just fine holding on to the two seed most likely and they really don't need to be ramped up until their first round matchup and even that might not be too bad for them Patrick Beverly has returned. He will be doing his four-day quarantine. Apparently, he was tested while he was gone with his family matter. And then Montrez Harrell remains outside of the bowl. Unknown whether he is getting tested regularly uh, or not. But it seems like everyone who has left has been. So I would be surprised if he weren't also. But with Zubac back now, they got Joe Noah, who's actually been playing reasonably well in some of the seating games. Or I'm sorry, in some of the scrimmages. So all of this not a huge deal for the clippers they're playing for i wanted to say june i guess they're playing for october uh, more accurately now zion williamson has also now returned to the bubble after his undisclosed family matter he too got coronavirus testing while he was gone and he hopes to practice on wednesday once his four-day quarantine is complete does that mean that he will play on thursday I think if it were another player, that might be possible. The Pels, of course, have a lot of pressure to start winning games uh, immediately. And that game against Utah is a big one. They need to win that. And Utah is going to be trying in that game too. They're fighting for seeing. So that should be a pretty high level of game. I would be shocked if Williamson weren't on some kind of a minutes limit. But it seems like he might be on track uh, to play. Uh, They take it pretty conservatively uh, with him. But they're going to want to try and make the playoffs. And hey, for the first game of this restart, maybe there's a little pressure to play but it really all depends what type of shape he was able to keep himself in There was a report that he was getting some cramping right before he had to leave the bubble Andre Robertson has actually been playing for OKC in these scrimmages as a backup for he looks pretty good I think he might be a better option if he can stay healthy uh, than Darius Baisley would have been and by the way Hollinger and I talked about really what we see as the top 12 teams going into the bubble yesterday so I recommend giving that a listen Hollinger and Duncan to really get yourself revved up we we had a number of predictions we just kind of free-formed it talked about the most interesting players and matchups that teams were facing as we went into the bubble for portland damian lillard did not play in sunday scrimmage against toronto he has an inflamed left foot x-rays were negative terry stott said he does have some inflammation i don't expect it to be a long-term thing for Philadelphia, Joel Embiid also sat out of scrimmage on Sunday with some calf tightness. He did practice today, however. It doesn't appear to be anything serious for him. Elsewhere, in terms of... Uh, corona, coronavirus status. Trey Burke apparently has arrived for Dallas. Aaron Baines is still in Phoenix, but uh an Elia Kobo is there. Jalen LeCue apparently is not uh, for Phoenix. We talked about that uh, on the last show, actually. Pat Connaughton said that Houston route as of uh, Saturday. Austin Rivers had left the bubble, but then returned due to a personal matter. So you should be pretty close to being able to play in Houston's first game. A couple of players just forgot to stop by the nurses' station for their mandatory. COVID tests and had to do one day quarantines. Christoph Porzingis for Dallas, he missed a, a scrimmage game. And Paul Millsap, surprisingly enough, for a, a veteran for Denver, he missed a, a, I think it was just a practice for him, but he was, uh, but both those players, no indication that they tested positive, but they they just missed the test and therefore weren't able to participate in the day's activities. Luke, Richard, and Bob Mute has arrived for Houston. He revealed that he did in fact have COVID nineteen and was symptomatic, but it appears to be recovered now. Indiana has been a team with a ton of news. Devontis Samotis had that plantar fasciitis, hadn't done anything in a while, and he now, in fact, has left the bubble. Woj reported as a significant foot injury. Nate McMillan turned it plantar fasciitis, said that he's going to LA to try to get uh, some additional treatment. And they are really light up front because Goga Bitadze hasn't practiced it at all. Nate McMillan says he's at least two weeks away from potentially uh, returning miles turner had a calf injury but played in their scrimmage yesterday oladipo actually had a a better game we'll see his status still up in the air he hasn't made a decision yet and so their starting lineup that mcmillan says he's likely to go to is aaron holiday malcolm brogdon victor oladipo tj warren and miles turner that might be one of the worst rebounding starting lineups in nba history be interesting to see what the matchups are warren is pretty undersized that at the four turner is not a good defensive rebounder they're gonna have a lot of speed and a lot of shooting out there but it's a lot of work uh, on turner warren and oladipo i mean those are three pretty good defensive players even brogdon and holiday like those aren't bad defensive players but they are very small i'd be interested to see how that lineup ends up looking but that's the plan right now. And then at backup center with no Sabonis, no Batadze, Jakar Sampson is going to be who they're going to go to. They're probably go to more of a switching unit on the second unit with Sampson. And the problem with Sampson was always that he couldn't shoot, but he was an NBA athlete. Uh, he has been dealing with some back issues as he was during the regular year, but he said that it was just a precautionary absence. He said he's fine today at practice. Uh, he did not play in their scrimmage yesterday. So Sampson ahead of TJ Leaf for that backup center position. And all this is very interesting. Interesting too, because remember that Nate McMillan only has a team option for next year. It's a shorter contract. Uh, Jay Michael reported that. And so you would imagine that this is kind of a fish or cut bait situation for the Pacers, where and for McMillan as well, where he's going to say, Hey, if I don't have a long term contract, does he want to go into next year as a potential lame duck? It does seem like, though, with some of the financial concerns around the league, which we're going to get to, and Herb Simon, for example, his fortune is based a lot on the shopping mall company, which is going downhill a little bit to begin with. And then with COVID-19, shopping malls are not the most popular, understandably so. So maybe we would just see that team option get exercised regardless, just because they don't want to spend money on a new coach. I think McVillan has done a good job. I don't think they need a new coach, uh, to be clear. But a lot of times when you get into this situation this late in a coach's contract, Coaches and teams are are loath to just play it out. Speaking of coaching, the Knicks I have not officially done so yet, but it is reported by Woj. Big surprise, Woj is uh, affiliated with CAA. Not that Woj doesn't break non-CAA news, but this one was a uh, fait accompli that he was going to get this story. Thibodeau is going to be hired. As the Knicks head coach, and it'll be a five-year deal. Again, we don't know if that's a full five-year deal, whether there are options. Usually these deals have a team option on the end of it, but still to get a five-year deal, that's the longest anybody ever gets as a coach, other than I think Brad Stevens when they lured him out of college initially. And it's impressive given what I thought was a, a pretty poor resume in Minnesota. To get that five-year deal, Stefan Bondi of the New York Daily News had previously reported that discussions had broken down over the contract, and then they did get the five-year deal. This is news. Interesting analog to 2014 is the last time that James Dolan brought in an outsider to run things. This time it's Leon Rose. Back then it was Phil Jackson. And you'll recall that Phil Jackson had negotiations with Steve Kerr. It, It, those apparently went pretty far and then Kerr, backed out in part due to frank isola's reporting in part due to the fact that he simply was not offered the contract that he wanted and that was deemed to be due to james dolan's uh, interference and there was some reporting that maybe dolan was interfering here as well i don't know that tom Thibodeau, frankly deserves a five-year contract like if he's really should have that much leverage but he will be the Knicks coach. Danny and I have talked about him and there are just some concerns overall of his development of young players. Although worth noting that guys like Derek Rose, Joakim Noah, and Jimmy Butler did develop very well on his watch. In Minnesota, the record was not as good. Kevin Pelton in his piece also noted that the ice defense and the strong side overload that he pioneered with Boston in the late 2000s, that's something that has been a less effective strategy overall and he was not able to improve The Wolves defense when he went there, the same way he was with Chicago. And even in Chicago, they slipped to not being a top 10 unit in his last season there. So I don't think that Tibbs is the right hire. I think he is, I don't know if he has shown enough to me to deserve another chance. You guys know that my general philosophy is if a guy hasn't proved himself to be truly outstanding as a coach, why not try and find, you know, say the next Taylor Jenkins or the next Nick Nurse or the next Phil Jackson or the next Pat Riley or the next Greg Popovich, all coaches who basically had no pedigree at all instead of going with a guy who has some good points, has some bad points seems to be on the downswing in terms of his performance and you kind of know what you're getting i don't think that there's much of a chance that tom thibodeau is gonna vault back into being in that top echelon of nba coaches finish out the news here with a couple of related items the first is that baseball has had an outbreak with the miami marlins i think it was four players had tested positive on sunday then today on monday up to 11 people have tested positive now they've been traveling together they dressed together in the clubhouse unclear what the level of masking has been i mean that's a pretty crazy outbreak even if you are spending time together in close contact if everyone's wearing masks and staying distant you shouldn't have that so there must have been maybe some kind of a breakdown crazily they actually played a game after the four positive tests because the team voted that they wanted to play and they played against the phillies so unclear whether the phillies got any transmission there either at least it's an outdoor sport without a lot of close contact the way you would have in basketball which is of course indoors but the reason i focus on that number one is because major league baseball is only testing every other day and i think they they have as much as a one or two day turnaround at times as well so it's really hard to get a handle on these outbreaks quickly if the nba is going to have players being in their home markets and proceeding under a similar approach to what baseball is doing for next season even with no fans. This definitely casts some doubt if we have the same level of transmission in the community as we have right now that there will be able to be a conventional regular season next year. And the NBA supposedly is looking at some bubble ideas for next year. But with both the success of this bubble and this issue with the Marlins, we'll see how football does. The NBA is lucky that they'll at least get a chance to see how football and baseball do before they try this themselves. But number one, we're looking at very likely we're not going to have fans next year. So that's 40% of your revenue gone, according to Evan Silver. And then... The fact that you might have to do this bubble again, and is the players association going to be okay with doing that again, as well, is that really going to be the only way you can do it when you have this level of transmission? It seems like that's uh, the case right now. And so on a related note, then the finances for next year, Brian windhorse uh, with some general reporting on that, what the financial climate is going to look like. There is speculation that teams could lose tens of millions of dollars now in theory, They're supposed to split the revenue 50-50 with the players. It remains to be seen, as we talked about last week, what the escrow situation is going to be there to actually enforce that. A lot of negotiations coming here for the players and owners and also unclear how bad owners' expenses are going to be, whether it's being able to get insurance money, whether it's not having to pay rent potentially. But with all that said, Windhorse saying there's speculation that teams could lose tens of millions of dollars. One owner told him that they're looking at $50 million losses. And I, again, caution that you really got to watch it here. When they say losing, you can say, well, hey, we were scheduled to make $100 million profit next year, and we're only going to make 50. So we lost $50 million, right? Like that's, that could be accurate. Or are we talking about, no, your cash flow is actually negative by $50 million. And it appears that they meant the latter, this owner, because what he said was if that happens i have three options i could borrow the money i could sell part of the team Or I could do a cash call and me and my partners would have to write checks. And yes, that is what happens. The the NBA is one of very few businesses where you just about have guaranteed profits at this point. With the TV deal and revenue sharing for certain teams and the players now getting less of the revenue than they did under the pre-2011 CBAs. But a global pandemic is one of those times. And owners always say, well, the reason that we deserve these profits is because we're putting up the capital, we're taking the risk. Well, that's a downturn is part of the risk, right? If you want to make those big profits, you also have the risk. Like that's why that's the service that the owners are providing here is the capital to make this operation go around. But that said, this is... Of going to lead, it would seem to some retrenchment, uh, according to Windhorse uh, reporting. Discussion that teams may have to slash payroll. Maybe they'll trade players. Maybe they won't aggressively pursue free agents. uh One GM told Windhorse that he suspects first-round picks will be for sale in this draft. With this also being a bad draft, and you've but you've really I talked about this with Wes Wilcox. You really got the perfect storm here because you're gonna have teams with no actual money few teams a cap that's lower than expected as well few teams with salary cap space above the mid-level and then you've got a draft that's not that good you've got a free agent class that is if not historically poor very poor overall so you remember back in the summer of 2018 we could get a redux of that it could be even more restrictive in terms of, of signings windows also focused on the warriors and they apparently are trying to get a 250 million dollar or 250 million dollar loan to cover expenses for next year that might enable them to continue to pay li- their large payroll recall also that they have that 17 million dollar trade exception they can add salary with and the warriors are unique in that they get 80 percent of their revenue from their gate that's way more than most teams most teams you know, as it was indicated by adam silver about 40 percent of the revenue is from gate overall and the warriors signed a new tv deal shortly after Lakab took over that has them below market especially when you consider how good the team has been in terms of their tv deal you compare that to the knicks or the lakers for example other high revenue teams they get a lot of tv revenue the lakers i think get 200 million dollars a year in terms of their tv revenue and you know i think the warriors are somewhere in maybe like the 35 to 50 million dollar a year range but they get a, a ton of this from the chase center but if they can get that financing uh, then maybe they can continue to add salary and next year is certainly going to be a critical year for the Warriors as they attempt to return to relevance also windhorst noting that lakab has significantly invested in technology and testing methods to try to safely get fans back into chase center sometime next season We'll see about that. I mean, I would imagine that would be extremely rapid turnaround testing for anyone entering the building, you know, 15 minute turnaround, but those tests may not be totally accurate, but you might also be able to have, if you do that and then you throw in mass and you throw in social distancing, you're not at full capacity, all that stuff, then maybe it could be possible it also depends of course on what the level of community transmission is but uh you know let's see if schools can successfully open first uh before we're going to try and have fans at, at basketball games and there's also the possibility of a vaccine of course but it being widespread enough by the end of next year I, I would say that's less likely again one more reminder please check it out share it on social media as well during the game i'll have a link uh, available pretty shortly to purchase it in just a one game situation for our league pass debut actually doing the game it's all there in one window you just click on the link you go to the nba league pass app if you're an international listener particularly if uh, that first game 230 eastern brooklyn orlando i promise you we will make it interesting if you've never tried it before this is your chance to give it a shot and also to let the nba know that you support having alternate commentating and hopefully this could be the beginning of something that's Really fantastic for us, something we can do regularly in concert with the NBA. So once more, that's 2.30 Eastern, Brooklyn and Orlando on Friday. And then Monday, 8 o'clock Eastern, San Antonio and Philadelphia. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because... Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And now Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Every sleeps differently and Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix Sleep Quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because I'm here in the room, that's 20% off your first order at american-giant.com. Don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us. All right, let's bring in Danny now to discuss the last of our teams here in the Southwest Division. We got to get to the New Orleans Pelicans, San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets, the latter of which uh, will be brief. uh, Our criteria, in case you forget, we're going to look at all the players with three or fewer years of experience and just talk about how their game evolved this season. And if they played at all last year, we'll give them a 1-10 through development grade. So uh, maybe the sexiest team out there for this exercise is the New Orleans Pelicans.
2: And remarkably, that's true without Brandon Ingram, because Ingram was in his fourth year, so is thus ineligible for how we do these requirements. And either way, we'd start with Zion Williamson, aged 19 season, only played in 19 games pre-hiatus for the Pels, but averaged 24 points and 7 rebounds in 30 minutes per game. Ridiculous 24 PER on 62% true shooting. 30% usage and how zion did
1: that let me stop you right there i mean 30% usage when you almost never shoot away from the rim i mean that's just absolutely incredible that he's just capable of generating that many shots right at the basket particularly when they almost never go to him in like an iso or something like that like uh, all of his stuff that he does is quick hitters it like just like that number of all the numbers that is out there have 30% usage with the type of game that he has like that just shows you how different he is that he can generate this many shots right out the basket when that's what teams are focused on taking away
2: here's here's another way of thinking about it having that high usage rate with that low an assist rate not because Zion's a bad assister but because most players with that amount of usage have the ball in their hands enough times to make those choices to put in their hands so for in the last 10 years so from 2010 on, and yes, it's true. Zion Williamson didn't play. Oh, he did play 500 minutes. Never mind. He did. Played, there were only 22 player seasons where somebody had a usage rate over 28% and an assist percentage below 13%. So that was the combination that Zion had. And he's in some pretty strong company. I mean, there's some interesting guys in that group. Young Brooke Lopez, young Demarcus Cousins. Anthony Davis twice, Uh, early Kevin Love did it. And so it's just like this unusual group of incredibly talented players that just had it in a different way and Andre Bargnani. Yeah,
1: and even then though, you know, those guys at least all have some sort of game away from the basket, whereas Zion may eventually develop that to some degree. I mean, he had that four three-pointers in the fourth quarter in that first game against the Spurs. And then I think he, what did he hit? One more all season, something like that?
2: I think he hit two more all, all season. And yeah, the the closest analog in terms of that might actually be Al Jefferson. And also early Brook Lopez didn't have a, didn't force space the floor that much. though he had more of yeah. a mid-range game than Zion does.
1: Yeah. But again, I mean, I think it's, you know, he just, the offensive glass the transition cuts you know, quick attacking post-ups. I mean, it's just, there are not that many players where they're just like, okay, let's throw it to Zion and see what he can do. So that's just what's so crazy about his game is just the speed with which he gets on top of the rim, the incredible finishing that he has. And even even then though, I mean, we'll talk about a few of these things that he can get a lot better at. But I mean, it's it still is just absolutely remarkable the amount of shots that he's able to generate at his size with that type of game. I just, I keep going back to that, I realize. Um... What else we got on him?
2: I think it's interesting how Zion is effective in basically all of the play types per synergy that the Pelicans put him in. Post-ups, 71st percentile. Transition, 68th, and I think that's going to go up with time. Cutting. 67th percentile offensive rebounds 62nd and you think that he could actually do better there if he wasn't if he wasn't missing his own misses sometimes he does has a yeah, lot of but those- he's
1: getting off the floor like nine times before everyone else gets it gets off it to you know so he's kind of padding his usage and his offensive rebounds a little bit true but it, that also makes his efficiency lower than it really could be um
2: yeah that that that's very true and also another another important stat for zion 10 free throw attempts per 36 minutes that's about the same rate as luka donchich had this year and that was something I praised in the last podcast and so Zion yeah it's only 565 minutes but the early indications are an incredibly efficient player and the word that I've used over the last couple of years something I've become more fixated on incidentally Kawhi Leonard's part of this is the concept of undeniability and at 19 years old with a lot of potential physical adjustments to do whether they're improvements or not we'll have to see Zion Williamson could overpower almost every NBA team not every team and those incidences are important but he's a beast against men instantly despite despite not being 100% physically I mean he missed the whole first part of the season was still coming back from surgery
1: yeah absolutely and you know I didn't think he looked quite as explosive as he did at Duke or in the preseason Um, a few other interesting notes uh, about his game is you're like oh well he can't shoot so how's he supposed to play next to another big and their numbers were still pretty good i mean i think the issue is more kind of that the other big gets in his way than that he gets in the other bigs way uh because he has to be guarded you know yeah he's not going to shoot a three-pointer but in spot up situations if you don't have someone in front of him and he gets ahead of steam like you're not going to be able to stop him so uh this is an example in spot up situations you know usually you think of that as taking a jumper and but synergy also logs when you catch the ball off a spot up and then you drive zion had 40 possessions in spot up situations and he only shot a jumper on six of those so he's catching the ball and going right hard to the basket if you are not on him and so that is really another aspect of his game uh, with that gravity which is good i mean i think we we probably should discuss his defense some though
2: Yeah, other than it seems like some some shooting luck that led to him being a positive in defensive RPM, there's a lot of room, let's say, to grow. Zion's instincts, you know, his reactions aren't great, and his rim protection isn't there. So the idea of him being a plus, I mean, offensively, you'd love for him to be your center because then you have shooting all around him, and that would just be a, a devastating attack, but defensively, as of right now, he can't carry that load, we don't know if he ever will, just about a half a block per 36 minutes. And the,
1: yeah, the, and remember in college, he was getting like two blocks a game, right? Right. Like, wasn't and, he getting like two blocks and two steals a game in college?
2: And, and some of it was also like his defensive rebounding numbers, just 14% of uh, opponent misses. That a little bit is, you know, playing with a center, but also uh, you, you'd like to see the, the Pelicans do better defensively on, on the glass when he's on the floor because you think that that would be a natural inclination, especially when Zion's playing the four.
1: Well, and I'd like to see him evolve as a grab and go guy. We'll hit on some of the things that that he can really improve on. But I mean, I think number one is just overall the conditioning. And he's just not playing hard enough defensively. You're not seeing nearly as many of the effort plays as you saw at Duke defensively. I always thought that his ability to slide his feet was a little overrated by some analysts. uh, And his ability to just make your nuts and bolts, rim protection, get your chest on the guy, pre-rotate, deter the attacks... You know, he can come over for a weak side block. A lot in college he hasn't really done that as you mentioned at the nba level so i want to see how he looks when he's really back in shape uh but you know the defensive instincts were not there and just the conditioning he just was not playing hard enough defensively so that's one thing that he really needs uh, to work on anything else that you see is kind of low-hanging fruit for his game
2: strangely enough i mean it, it, per the synergy splits he he was less effective as a transition scorer than you would expect i mean 1.2 points per possession isn't terrible but when you think about the fact that basically no one can stop Zion and maybe turning the ball over a little bit less will help and I think getting used to the NBA will 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 change that a little bit for Zion remember 19 games played and then a little bit in the preseason and a teensy bit in summer league before that earthquake and I, I think that he you know I think that there there's growth in terms of turnover rate um, just kind of keeping a little bit and I think he can do more at, when teams start fixating on him I think that Zion will have some potential as a passer you know I don't think he's ever going to be like a, a crazy elite passer but But being able to, he keeps his head up well enough to be able to find guys when there's extra attention thrown his way.
1: Yeah, I I might be a little higher on it than you. As as with him as a passer, I do think he has pretty solid instincts there, and you know, a, a big part of it is that kind of set piece game where I think that's where you could take some steps forward uh, particularly as a ball handler in pick and roll against smaller players where you have a small like a JJ Redick setting the screen for him and then if they switch it he can just put that guy in the goal or just you you, you might want you might go under on him you'd say oh because you know he's not going to take the jumper but he's so fast he's going to beat you to the other side of the screen anyway and get a shoulder by you and draw the foul or get to the bucket so that's one that I'd like to see him use more in the grab and go game defensive rebounding i'd like to see more of uh and the right hand was pretty much a non-existent for him except when he gets out for in transition for big dunks with no one around him and he didn't need that right hand but as you mentioned against teams like sixers lakers and bucks we didn't play the sixers but we saw those teams slow him down a little bit and make him less efficient and you know Giannis, brooke lopez really gave him problems and a big part of that was just you know, he was incredibly aggressive because no one ever stops him. He should be aggressive. But I was worried that they just weren't going to, or or that he didn't have the craft to finish. He has great touch, but it just using his shoulder a little bit better against the absolute biggest guys. But those are the guys he's going to have to beat if he wants to be on a championship contending team. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think defensively is the the biggest thing for him and if you can get to the point where you can play him as a small ball center at all defensively and actually stop people and your other teams are just going to have no chance against him so obviously a very impressive debut and we've heard that he is getting tested regularly for coronavirus and uh we're recording this a couple days early but hopefully he will be back in time for the start of the season who's up next here for the pulse
2: lonzo ball lonzo ball played the most minutes he has, in an NBA season, pre-hiatus because of his injuries the first two years, averaged 12.4 points, 7 assists, and 6.2 rebounds in 32 minutes a game, started 47 of, of the 56 games he appeared in. Ball had a 13-7 PER, 53% true shooting on about 19 usage, and he, ha- he had a huge jump in true shooting, was 49% last year and 44% as a rookie.
1: The synergies between he and Zion Williamson are myriad and they have the highest number of assists per minute, Lonzo to Williamson, as a duo in the NBA and, you know, I mean, those guys... just like the way that williamson likes to just sneak behind the defense for alley-oops and that is just candy for lonzo ball the way lonzo pushes it in transition the hit ahead passes so those guys work great together and the big thing though is the way he's shooting the three-pointer he's not passing up shots anymore and the form is so much better and fred vinson who worked so well with brandon ingram uh going back to quincy pondexter years before that uh I think really helped him. He doesn't shoot it as much off of his left hip. I was watching one of the exhibition games here before the scene games start. And, you know, he's actually stepped into a three-pointer going to his right his old form he couldn't really do that at all but that said he still is pretty powerless once he dribbles the ball inside the arc unless he just has a straight line to go right to the basket so I mean and I don't know that he's going to be able to improve that but on this team with all the threats they have now I don't think he really needs to
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair distinction to make. And something that I found interesting, not all surprising, but interesting, is Lonzo's disparity as a pick and roll scorer and as a pick and roll passer. So this is a split that Synergy has. The Pelicans scored 0.59 points per possession when Lonzo was was trying to score. That's 12th percentile. And almost double that, 1.16 points per possession when he passed, which was 75th percentile. And That's the combination. I mean, you can't separate the two because it actually, in some ways, is impressive that he's that efficient as a passer when teams don't have to respect him as a scorer. But when you combine that with some of the defensive tools he has, and of course, Lonzo's ability to press the ball in transition, he becomes an interesting player to have in your mix. Now, whether the Pelicans are ready to move on, let's say from Drew Holiday or some of the other stuff, to just say, okay, Zion or sorry, Lonzo slip you are you're the guy who's going to have the ball in your hands, the initiator, even in half court situations I, I don't think they're there yet but he can be a part of the solution and that is something i was less confident in part of that is because this year lonzo made 40 of his catch and shoot threes per game taking more of them than last year when that was 32 as, as a laker his second year
1: one thing that hasn't gone up though is the free throws i mean Ugh. i guess it's not below 50 anymore but only 67 free throws in 56 games I mean that that's really rough and shot 57 percent. he was hitting him more early but again the sample size was so small you couldn't really take that to the bank but and two point percentage still 45 percent. i mean that's and he is not a great finisher he doesn't see contact I me mean, part of the problem with not getting to the foul line is that your percentage around the rim is going to be so much worse, right? Instead of those bad shots when you're contested at the rim, turning into fouls a lot of the time, you're just missing them and it kills your field goal percentage. So that that's a, a major problem for him to be sure. But I mean, if he's just largely going to be a spot-up weapon, a cutter, a, an initiator from the top of the key who can you know throw some value-added passes on backdoor lobs and stuff like that, for this team, that's all you need. I mean, I wouldn't mind even his usage going down a bit more then it has, I mean, because you think of with Drew Holiday, Brandon Ingram, and Zion Williamson on this team. I mean, those are the mouths to feed at, at this point. So he doesn't necessarily need to have much more of a role than this. Anything else you want to talk about on him? I mean, and defensively, I think he was... Solid, you know, maybe not quite as much of a difference maker as he looked like in his Lakers days. Um, but, you know, still certainly a, a quality defensive player, yeah. to be sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, 1.6 steals per 36 minutes, capable rebounder for his position. And Lonzo Ball, we've talked about this with Russell Westbrook before, Lonzo Ball grabbing rebounds is a good thing for you because then Lonzo Ball has the ball to initiate the to initiate and transition. So
1: Yeah, I, and, and he does really help them push in transition he does. a lot, especially with those hit-ahead passes. That's an important part part of his game
2: yeah so I, I think that for a development score I'm gonna give Wanzo. I'm gonna give him a seven and you could make an argument for an eight but I wanted to see more development of him kind of in some of those scoring capacities and it seems like he's settling into a role but settling into a role doesn't necessarily mean huge development at least in terms of his game
1: yeah and I do I think I agree I think a seven just with the, the shooting the surgery that he's done on his jump shot I mean that was what was really neat I mean we thought is this guy just not gonna be able to hit a shot and now I have some pretty good confidence that he's going to be a decent enough shoot this free-thrishing still a little worrisome uh, but you know getting up to that 38% for three and particularly before the hiatus he was really hitting well uh, and you know I think having Zion with him really helped his game in a number of facets Um, but it's just inside the arc he just seems to have almost like a mental block like just with the way he like brings the ball up like today he was just wide open for a layup as I was watching the exhibition game and just like shanked it off the backboard because he kind of like brought the ball up like the same way that he does when he's shooting a jump shot around the room so he just doesn't have that craft that feel for finishing at the basket no floater game no real pull-up game and so I think it's going to be difficult for him to get much better in terms of adding new skill now that the jumper is better, but I think he just as long as he continues to refine what he has, he's gonna be a valuable player. Uh just not someone who's gonna be a primary initiator of the offense.
2: In the half court. Yeah.
1: Speaking of adding new skills, I suggest that you go to sportsbusinessclassroom.com right now and check out their 2020 virtual conference. With no summer league this year, they're going virtual, which actually gives us a chance to lower the price and allow more people in. You've heard me talk about SBC with Larry Kuhn and Wes Wilcox. Both will be intimately involved, as will I this year. This is a curriculum that Larry Kuhn and I developed initially, and the conference continues to evolve every year. You can learn about basketball scouting, video, and and analytics and how to build your resume and portfolio as well. We have all sorts of professional development and you can meet amazing people. Just a, a few of the alumni, Amber Nichols, who's an assistant GM of the Capital City Gogo. We had her on the podcast earlier this year. Liam Doyle, who I met via SBC. He impressed me so much as, as a student. He ended up becoming our director of inside and Foresight and dunkton and then he moved on to the Miami Heat from that Dave dufour now of the athletic really started his career in basketball media through SBC and now he's uh, going to be one of the people running it this year so go to that website sportsbusinessclassroom.com right now check out the 2020 virtual conference and if you sign up please let him know that you came from dunkton I hope to see you there.
2: Let's go to Jackson Hayes. You and I both criticized the pick of Hayes at number eight. Remember all of the the assets that New Orleans had going into that draft, even beyond the number one overall pick. They moved down from number four from that King's Ransom from Atlanta when they wanted DeAndre Hunter, and Hayes you know I, I would say to some extent he had the kind of season I expected seven and a half points and four rebounds in 17 minutes per game ended up about a thousand minutes played 12 starts 68 true shooting on 15 usage and like many a jumping jack center before him including Mitchell Robinson he does that by shooting Jackson Hayes 83 percent of his shots in the restricted area made 74 percent of them that's how you're going to be efficient
1: yeah, and there was hope that he may develop a jumper in time. We saw a little bit more of that in summer league. That clearly is not gonna be a major part of his game right now. And he's only sixty-three percent from the line. Uh only took twenty jump shots all season, was not effective on those. Uh I didn't think that this would be a reason why he wouldn't be a good fit with Zion, but neither of them can get a defensive rebound.
2: Yeah, that's a now, problem. You know,
1: if yeah. Uh and Ingram's not really a great defensive rebounder either. Um You know, I hoped he would have a little bit higher of a block percentage. You'd hope he could get up to that kind of Mitchell Robinson territory. And certainly, you know, two blocks for 36, that's nothing to sneeze at, but... It's also not like these kind of raw shot blockers. If they're really going to be defensive difference makers, you'll see a little bit more. I think that's kind of the hope for him. But he's extremely raw. You know, he's a football player for a while. Also seen to have some maturity issues, as uh, he told the NBA to suck his dick on Instagram during, <laughs> during the uh, uh, when he didn't make the fucking All Rookie Team.
2: Maybe my favorite uh, or, or, reason. Or the my rising stars for indignation ever being yeah, excluded from the rookie stars. sophomore game.
1: Well, we know why agents are always lobbying people that he should make it be or, or that these guys should make it because apparently they care about this shit, but uh th- yeah, that that was that was pretty ridiculous. Um Well,
2: also also ridiculous yeah. is Jackson Hayes' foul rate. 5.4 fouls for 36 minutes. You might remember us lamenting Jaron Jackson Jr.'s foul rate last time. It's around the same level, and Jackson Hayes doesn't have some of the t- same tools that Jaron does. And I- I think that there is a lot of room for him to grow on that end. I, I've said before that elite defensive players, especially centers, often show some signs early and I didn't see those from But he can get to the point where he's average or above average with his physical tools.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are, are myriad. And particularly if he gets the ball in space on the pick and roll, he does have pretty good hands. Like, watch out. You better, like, cover your head because he's going to come in and dunk on you, particularly off of one foot. He covers so much ground. You know, his... Finishing on layups, it's not great. He's got to get way stronger in the post. He's going to get run over. That's a lot of his fouls you know, against post-up centers. Uh, I think also as a screener he needs to get better yes. he needs to get more physical avoid fouling and, and it's rotating in terms of just getting his chest on guys verticality where he could be incredibly effective with his foot speed and leaping ability and length but it was not effective there I mean you saw what a huge difference it made for this Pels team when Derek Favors was available again and nobody thought that Hayes was going to be ready this year but project plus questionable fit for Zion you know I don't, I mean i I don't think that he's like a bad player. Maybe he could be a starting center. You know, he's got the tools for that, certainly. But I'm just, you know, using that type of a resource on him. I I still question it to some degree. I mean, the number one thing I'm going to be watching for him over the next year or two is that foul rate. If he's able to stop fouling and just be more of an effective help defender and verticality guy, that's going to be the key swing skill for him going forward.
2: Yeah, that and figuring out how it's going to work when he plays with Zion in terms of spacing. Because, as, you know, as you said, Jackson Hayes only took 20 jump shots all season. If Zion is involved in those actions, you, you want every other player out of the paint just to give Zion more room to work. And so Hayes being defended by a big guy, whether it's a four or five, depending on whether they're handling it with Zion, will would open up the four if he can get people to respect anything other than sitting in the jumper dunker spot.
1: What do you make of Josh Hart's age 24 season?
2: I still really like Hart. 10 uh, 10 points six and a half rebounds in about 27 minutes per game came off the bench more often than he started Hart had 56% true shooting on just 15 usage this year and his 34% on seven and a half threes per 36 minutes that was the highest frequency of of shots of of threes in his career but also lower percentage than that rookie year where he hit a ton of them as a Laker 68% so about two-thirds of Josh Hart's field goal attempts were from three and so some of that is good because hey if you take if you get threes that's generally going to be a higher value shot than what you get but another part of that is that Hart has just he's just Doesn't get to the line and doesn't get to the basket very often. He did make 69% of his restricted area shots, but only 21% of his attempts.
1: Yeah, he actually is a really good finisher. Yeah, when he gets there. Right, absolutely. And in transition as well, I mean, he's he's kind of similar to his teammate Drew Holiday in that he's a pretty physical, strong finisher. He goes into guys' bodies, but he doesn't really accentuate contact very well. So he doesn't get to the line as much as you'd expect. But he also just like goes right through guys, hangs in the air, finishes, knocks them backwards. So it could look good. You'd like to see him a little more effective as a driver. Some of those second units didn't have as much spacing as you would hope. Uh, but... Especially when they had all the injuries early, he's actually had to play a lot of the four for this team.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's a part of why Hart had a defensive rebound rate over twenty one percent this year.
1: Yeah, that's a a great point. And you know, I think he, I still like him as a potential three and D starter. You know, he's his foot speed is a little bit questionable, but he also has good length and strength. So he's maybe a little better guarding bigger players, but he still doesn't quite have the size to check. You know, your Kawhi Leonard types. A few do, obviously. Um, The other thing that there had been some hope for where, and again, there's a lot of perimeter miles to feed on this team, so it's not a surprise, but particularly in summer league he'd shown the ability to shoot the three off the the dribble in pick and roll and that's something that has really dried up for him 12 out of 47 on jumpers off the dribble when he did run pick and roll it was generally a jumper off the dribble again he's not a distributor at all so you know if he does do some pick and roll it's more get him with the advantage going downhill as you swing it to the weak side type of stuff you know he's not going to be a huge initiator Um, anything else that popped out uh, about his season? I mean, I think it was the three point shooting, you know, he's been in the 34% range after that Torrid rookie year, uh, the, as you mentioned, he did up the attempt rate. So I'm, uh, I'm worried he's going to be more of a 35% than a 40% guy from three. Uh, So that. That makes me a little bit lower uh, on him, and he's never been a great free throw shooter. either. he's been in the seventy percent range most of the uh, of his career. So that that might be what he is—is is, is not you know just some awesome three point shooting option, but you know a guy who's going to be in the NBA. He's going to have a ten year career. You know, is he going to be a starting shooting guard? You know, I think there is some hope that he would get there, but he, I don't think he really developed that much this season. You know, it wasn't—he wasn't a bad player, but you know he's probably a four for his development. I would say.
2: Yeah, I was I was thinking a five just because because. because he's still getting better defensively but you're right that there there isn't enough as much as we kind of thought in going back to like summer league mvp josh hart thinking that there could be something more there but i i think that him being that lower usage player seems like a totally reasonable use especially on this Pelicans team but really on any good team just because there are going to be other players who are better with the ball in their hands than josh hart let's go to Nikhil alexander walker dunked on darling at moments in time one of my favorites going back to adidas nations in whatever the hell year that was maybe twenty. 16 and 17th overall pick this past year age 21 season and had some had some flashes both in summer league and the preseason and then you know not as much during the season as you'd expect with a raw young guy five points in 12 minutes per game played 500 minutes overall in the season Nikhil had a 7.6 per and a rough 44 percent true shooting on 23 percent usage and we'll talk about why right now
1: yeah the two pointers were atrocious 34 percent terrible on floaters absolutely never gets to the foul line uh, and shot only 46% in the restricted area. Now it is important to remember what his role was for a lot of the season. Uh when he did play, he started in the rotation. Remember Gentry was doing, you know, like 12 man rotation at the start of the year even with Zion out. And despite that, they were putting him as really the only guy who could dribble on the second unit. And so That's how you end up with 23% usage and 44% true shooting. He'd had a wonderful summer league. He'd had a wonderful preseason. So maybe they thought that he could... Thrive in that role. That still seemed to make him your number one guy right out of the gate. As the number seventeen pick, it seemed like it was a bit much, and it was for him. uh You know, he still loves to swing these lefty and righty hook passes out of pick and roll. He, he can be a spectacular passer at time. He can get to some step back threes on occasion uh, as well. You know, I think he worked on getting stronger, worked on his finishing a lot during the hiatus um in the exhibition game. I, I watched it against Brooklyn. You know, he kind of. Kind of look pretty close to the same guy. I think he did slow down, get a little stronger for a couple of finishes on occasion. Very thirsty shooter, of course, in that game against Brooklyn. So that, that hasn't changed too much. And... Defensively, you know, I think he he still can be a playmaker. Needs to get stronger there as well to f- fulfill his destiny. I mean, we thought of him as a Danny Green type early on in his career. He's he matured more into a ball handler. I think to get time early on here, he might want to focus more on those Danny Green type of things and be a little more op- opportunistic. But he still is playing largely as he was again in that scrimmage against Brooklyn uh, as a guy that they expect to have the ball. And I think there's enough raw tools there. That I think something can come of that, but he's not quite explosive enough to where you're like, oh, this guy's gonna be a big star. Uh, so I'm, uh, I really like watching him play. Still, I'm still optimistic about his future. I think he's gonna be a, a solid player in the league for a while. But you know, that two point percentage is a major problem.
2: Well, and, and David Griffin has a fairly easy solve here, which is Nikhil Alexander Walker can guard twos, play a one next to him. And, and, you know, maybe somebody who can function a little bit more off ball than than some of the ones that are out there, but that would help a lot. And I brought up the disparity between Lonzo Ball as a pick-and-roll scorer and as a pick-and-roll passer. Remarkably, Nikhil Alexander-Walker has a larger disparity than his teammate. He He's only scoring .67 points per possession as a scorer, but then the Pelicans score 1.31 when he passes? Now, small sample size, obviously, with Nikhil. He's, he only ran 180 pick-and-roll. As synergy counts it for those passes plus the plus the uh, turnovers and the points, but still, uh, you know, there there is something there, and with and with Nikhil. The catch and shoot shots already like his mechanics are totally fine. So if they let him kind of work on that stuff, not in games that count because they want to be a playoff team next year, I think that they could eventually bear fruit when he's like 23, 24, but I worry a little bit about Travis schlanking this up a little bit and putting too much on Nikhil's shoulders when they actually have expectations. Kendrick Williams,
1: Ended up playing 780 minutes, despite the fact that he really didn't play after January with a a back injury that was somewhat nebulous. He's back now playing in the exhibition games, but really a, a year where it looked like he could potentially seize a rotation spot as a backup for... But the shooting just did not come around for him in the slightest.
2: No, unfortunately, Williams shot thirty percent in college and sixty-three percent free throw shooter. That disparity, little little note there. But only twenty-six percent on four-point-four threes per thirty-six minutes. That was both a lower percentage and a lower attempt rate than his rookie season. And that's why Kendrick Williams had a forty-three percent true shooting on just nine-point-two usage this year.
1: Well, and nine out of twenty-four from the line. That's not this good either. This season, um, you know, he took two-thirds of his shots as three-pointers and you mentioned that he just couldn't hit anything out there. And, you know, he's not quite athletic enough to make up for not being a good shooter. I mean, the the comparison is... A Jared Dudley type, but Jared Dudley has been shooting close to forty percent from three a lot of years in, in his career. And Williams went backwards in that regard. And defensively, he's you know not a combo forward who has quick enough feet or enough athleticism to really check the other guys. Maybe you know he can switch a little bit in a pinch, is kind of the hope for him. And he is a smart player. He plays hard. Outstanding, outstanding rebounder. I really enjoy watching him get on the glass uh, in particular. Uh, but I'd like to see more help instincts from him as well, and I mean, he really, as much as I, he was a good story last year, a good find, did well to not take a two way and get an NBA contract. He was not playing anywhere close to the level of a rotation player this year, so and you probably got to give him a two in terms of his development rating, especially at age twenty five. You'd hope that there could be more of a step forward. So he's going to need to shoot the ball to have more than a, than a fringe career, and you know he's a, a good kid, smart player. If that can come around, you know, I think he can hang around for a while, but uh, that's the uh, sine qua non for him.
2: And he is one of two Pelicans that I think are restricted and could really get squeezed by the market. Brand Ingram obviously won't. And the other one is Frank Jackson. Jackson has had really an injury-plagued tenure overall with the Pelicans, though he did play 656 minutes pre-hiatus in his age 21 season, averaged five and a half points and about an assist per, th- per game in 13 minutes. Jackson seven point seven per fifty percent true shooting on about twenty percent usage, and we've heard that we've heard the story a couple times for different Pelicans. You know, respectable but not great. Thirty three percent on threes, but only forty four percent on two pointers.
1: Yeah, and took some bad shots. Fifty one percent in the restricted area. That's uh, you'd hope he can do better there, but the lack of experience from the injuries is definitely a problem. He certainly has NBA athleticism, but does not really have point guard vision and he was kind of Alvin Gentry was playing this rotation roulette. I think Jackson was in some lineups too, that were a little under talented somewhat by necessity with all the injuries early on, as they had that 13 game losing streak and they were six and 22 early and he kind of had to play. Uh, but way too high of a usage for this player type. I think the future for him is to lock in more defensively where he has tools, but we didn't really see him as, as a quality option there. And then to play next to a ball dominant wing who can really distribute, uh, be a kind of a three and D point guard, you know, I mean, really, Patrick Beverly to me, is the type of guy he should be modeling his game after a little bit more. But, you know, Patrick Beverly playing hard is a skill. Not many people can play with the level of intensity that he provides all the time. But that sort of player is how I think he's going to have a career. I think the, the ship has kind of sailed as far as him being, you know, a real offensive creator. And But he does have shooting ability. He does have athleticism. So I think he could evolve into that, but he's going to have to embrace that role.
2: He is, and it could be hard to to find his way between now and then. I think Jackson will get chances, but it is always point guards who the best thing they do is not running an offense. It can be a real, some real growing pains there. And I don't really want to give him a development score because of the injury play. He but he, he did better this year than I guess I anticipated. I'm a little lower in him than you are.
1: Yeah, a season ago, Jackson. I actually played more last year. I think we were kind of, it, it was forgettable because we'd kind of tuned out of the Pelicans. Well, after it's Anthony also because us, because he missed down. his rookie year. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I think I, I'd, in my mind, I was kind of conflating the rookie year with, yeah, with last year. Yeah, I think you year. might be right. But, but statistically, I really no improvement at all. In fact, he took a step backwards. So I, I'd probably have to give him like a three at best, maybe even a two. Um, I mean, it's just every single stat is worse just about other than his free throw rate. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tucks from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because um we could talk very quickly about the rockets i think that uh what they have three candidates and those players are typified by the fact that two of the three candidates are two-way guys and one of them has already basically just said he's not coming back and they released him from his contract so he could go play in france (laughs) so (laughs) they they got chris clemens and he's a good g-league player he he lit up summer league a little bit 24 points and six assists uh, in the g-league 59% 59% true shooting, 28% usage and, and pass the ball reasonably well. Also 12.4 threes per 36, which, you know, I mean, Rio Grande Valley has been uh, at the forefront of that for some time. Nick nurse used to be the coach there, for example. Uh, but you know, he's a way undersized gunner, but he does have that off the dribble shooting and, i mean the, the problem is that the big club doesn't really need his skill set except in mop-up duty right now so he might be able to carve out more of a role on a team like say the magic that just needs someone to sop up some shots off the dribble and has defenders around him but uh houston obviously with russell westbrook and james harden is not in need of that well, and then yeah and go speaking
2: ahead, of not needing the skill set i mean i the guy who would have been the, the player we talked about the most here, Isaiah hartenstein they cut and no one claimed him off waivers so
1: oh yes of course that 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 typifies it even more. Yeah, two, two of the four young guys aren't even on the team anymore. Uh, and then they got Michael Fraser still, you know, 3 and D guy out of Florida. And he strode developed the three part of his game. It might be someone to keep an eye on, you know, but he only played 66 minutes with the big club. So let's uh, move on to San Antonio.
2: So... We, we had a little bit of a discussion about whether to do DeJounte Murray because DeJounte Murray, sort of paralleling Ben Simmons to an extent, he is in his four, the fourth year. DeJounte has already gotten his extension, but he didn't play for one full season, so this is his third season of playing. We decided to talk about him because we also think Murray's really interesting. Age 23 season, averaged 11 points, 6 rebounds, and 4 assists in 25 minutes per game. Started 50 of 58 games. Murray had a 17 PER, 54% true shooting on about 21% usage. And um, that was a career high in true shooting and in PER, helped by 38% on just And Here we go again. If you've heard this story before, 38%, but only 2.23s per 36 minutes. He only took 90 threes in about 1,500 minutes play.
1: Yeah, now that actually is a major step forward yes. for, for him. And he, he started to get to the point late in the season where he'd at least take him more off the catch. But, you know, we're looking at essentially one catch and shoot shot per game. And then off the dribble, he did not take a three-pointer off the dribble and pick and roll all year, according to Synergy. Or I'm sorry, did not make a three-pointer off the dribble and pick and roll all year, according to Synergy. What were some of the other stats that stood out to you about him?
2: Uh, More than one-third of Murray's... Shot attempts were from ten feet to the three point line, so basically you could say two point jumpers. But he made forty percent, forty seven percent, sorry, of his long twos per cleaning the glass, which is seventieth percentile. That is a big part of why Murray had about league average true shooting. I'm not entirely confident that that will continue, especially when you consider the the, the three point shooting. It could, but I'm not I'm not confident that it will just yet.
1: Yeah, I, I I'm uh I feel a little better about. It. I mean, obviously that's a really high number. It might drop back, but I I feel confident that he's gonna be an effective. Effective mid-range shooter like that's something that he was he was more comfortable with that I mean I remember his second year when I would watch him work out before games he was they didn't even really have him taking threes other than just like pure spot up threes from the corner they wanted to get him really comfortable from two first and I think he's gotten to that point now uh and you know so that does give him a little bit of a weapon are you terrified of him taking a mid-ranger off a of picker roll no probably not but it's something that could be there when the defense breaks down in the half court that's not a terrible shot um one transition has dried up so i i, I feel okay about that um What about his finishing?
2: This season, Murray made 62% of the shots in the restrict area. That was the most of his career. But his attempt rate was down a lot from his last healthy season, 17-18, where that was uh, 41% of the shots that he attempted. And only 32% on floaters. So that touch in that kind of middling area still hasn't quite gotten there yet. And maybe that can come in time. I mean, I I think that it could. But, you know, I would say say that's an overall net improvement. But Murray, only 3.1 free throw attempts per 100% which is actually the lowest free throw attempt rate of his career
1: yeah and obviously he's coming off the turn acl it happened pretty early on so he's a- about a year out from the surgery when he uh, returned this year and you mentioned 62 percent of the restricted area like oh great he's a guard that's league average fine but if you look at his finishing in the half court per synergy below 50 percent at the basket and so he gets a lot of steals he'll get out in transition i think a lot of that 62 percent was finishes that are relatively uncontested in transition when he gets into having to finish among the trees in a half court situation then that number really drops to below 50 percent and so that's something he's got to improve and you know he's kind of a skinny guy where i think he could accentuate contact a little bit more and just kind of learn the tricks but uh that's you know he could do well to learn from his teammate demar derozan in that regard Guard but yeah, either he's got to finish better around the rim, especially with his athleticism and size, you'd hope that he could really be a plus there. And, and that that wasn't necessarily the case. And so what it boils down to, he's probably a little below average as a passer for a point guard. And so what is this guy's bread and butter going to be? You want to give him a little bit of a pass. This is his first year back from the ACL, but this is age 23 season. He's on that extension now. So is it, is he just going to kind of be, you know, all right, we can get by with this guy offensively and the defense is his calling card that seems more likely than not you know you never want to count out the spurs development particularly with an athletic guy like him but the I, i'm uh you know i think it's gonna be more like we get by with this guy offensively than then he's gonna be a quality creator for us
2: yeah and, th- and that's what concerns me because if a team can't get that from their point guard they have to get it from somewhere else and maybe that can be Derek white who we'll talk about very soon but otherwise you have to find that player and san antonio is you know presumably at some point going to be in a rebuild and it can be hard if you're looking for somebody who's not point guard sized who can log those minutes as a starter or next to murray or something else and also something worth keeping an eye on now quantifying defense is really hard but DeJounte Murray's last healthy season he was the number one guarded defensive RPM and he was he was an absolute force out there and the on-off metrics were pretty neutral about him defensively this year and while this was the highest steal rate of DeJounte Murray's career the a lot of the on-off things just didn't love what he didn't have the same effusive praise let's say than they did when he was a second year player.
1: Yeah, and of course it's a different Spurs team now. I think that yes, 17, it is. 18 team, that 1718 team, I want to say was third in defense, and they still had Danny Green and Kyle Anderson on that team. A more mobile. Yeah,
2: that that Marcus was the Aldridge. year when they stunned us because Kawhi Leonard didn't play, but they were still really good defensively.
1: Let's turn to the aforementioned Derek White now.
2: This was White's age 25 season. Remember, he was a much older, drafty a couple of years ago. Uh, 10 points, 3.4 assists, and 24 minutes per game. Started 13 of his 61 appearances. PER, 59% true shooting on 18 usage. Also had a 19.5 assist percentage. That's basketball references version of that. And importantly, Dirk White upped his free throw attempt rate to 5.7 per 36, which is better. And I'm pretty much fine with that being being about where he gets to. But though, obviously, you could expect it to improve additionally.
1: Yeah, and White, again, you know, you wonder if it were a different situation than the Spurs, whether he could shoot it more. Because I did think he flashed the ability to shoot more off the dribble from three every once in a while in pick and roll. As, As a pick and roll player, the numbers really stood out as being outstanding, you know, like 80th, 90th percentile in a lot of the metrics that Synergy tracks. And part of that was due to a point per possession off the dribble and pick and roll, which is a little bit unsustainable. I don't know if he's that level of shooter where he's really just going to be a mid-range artist, but he is an outstanding finisher. Also, a lot of the pick and roll that he's doing is going to that right-hand advantage situation that he likes to bring the ball up the left side of the floor and come off a double drag screen in transition. But I think he's improved the craft of the pick and roll as well to where he's another guy who has learned to slow down and trust his strength and athleticism. Once the screen has gotten the guy off of him, he can kind of probe a little bit, take his time and and get to the basket and trust himself as a finisher. You know, his passing is... I'd say again, a little more combo guardy than pure point guardy. Uh, he could find weak side shooters using his size every once in a while. Um, and then the other thing I think he really needs to work on is the left hand finishing at the rim, particularly if they don't let him get to his right hand and pick and roll. If he, if he gets directed towards the left baseline, he's bringing the ball right back into the defense. That that's the one time he would struggle as a finisher and then defensively you know i I think we he established himself as a a quality option there uh, as a combo guard a little too small uh, to guard forwards um, any other numbers that stuck out to you?
2: We wondered what White would be as a creator. And one of the reasons we kind of still have to wonder about that is that he plays a lot with Patty Mills. About 60% of White's minutes came with, with Mills on the forward. Mills is going to be that lead guy. And White has a similar assist assist percentage with and without Patty Mills. But the offensive rating drops up to about 104 points per 100 possessions when White plays without Mills. That includes a very, very small amount of minutes with DeJounte. but. I think what, yeah, what,
1: they had just started playing together a little bit after the trade deadline, but not much,
2: not very much. And so with White, yeah, he he doesn't have like a terrible skill set to be an to be an off ball to be an off ball, you know, pri- secondary creator is kind of the term that I would use for that. And White is six foot four, so and he incredibly guard twos, but. That player just isn't as enticing in, in in the league. You know, there isn't there isn't as much there as, as some of the like even going back to that game when he went crazy against Denver in the 2019 playoffs. And it's there's still some potential for that, and you wonder in a different ecosystem what it could be. But remember that White plays in a more favorable ecosystem within the Spurs in some ways than Murray does because that second unit is a little bit more structured and, and a little bit less DeRozany so that he can Derek White can yeah. benefit from that.
1: Yeah, they got Bell and Ellie Mills would be out there. A lot, you know, they'd go really gay at the four. Uh, So yeah, no, I I think that's an important point to make uh, the context in which he's operating. So you know, again, I think he could be a semi-capable starter at either guard position. Yeah, certainly a a third guard can be have a a nice long career. Do I see stardom in his future? You know, that's really tough to say. Uh, Again, you know, I'd give him a five for his development rating. I think. People were going a little crazy on him and, you know, he had that big game against Denver basically because they were just letting him get to the basket and, and you know, they weren't really guarding him the right way. They were trying to close out him. he was driving right by guys and Jokic and company, you know, doesn't have great rim protection. He's a good finisher. So I think expectations were too high. You know, some people might have been kind of disappointed, but I don't know I think he's kind of right on track for what he is supposed to be this year. Uh Lonnie Walker, explosive guard out of Miami. This is his age 21 season. And You know, just a lot of the usual hallmarks of these young athletic guards. They're tough to project sometimes. Some good, which is more kind of watching him. You see the wild plays. Some bad, which is the statistical indicator.
2: Right. I mean, 52% true shooting on 18 usage isn't phenomenal. I mean, for a 21-year-old guard who's still figuring it out, it's not terrible. But 41% on just 3.3 three-pointers per 36. You know, that's okay. 71 3 attempts in with the Biggs Club this year. They're almost all assisted, but you'd expect that with Lonnie Walker as a three-point shooter. And then, but the, the big concern there is, and this has been a hallmark of the two teams we spent a lot of time on here, struggling from two-point range. Walker, he did go up from a small sample size 33% on twos last year, up to 44%, but 44% still isn't great. 58% makes in the restricted area, and just 30% on floaters.
1: Yeah. Low free throw rate as well. That's another thing. 2.5. He's basically getting per 36, basically getting fouled once a game. Uh, And as a spot-up shooter, you mentioned the numbers are really good, but not high volume. And it's a tough fit between Derek White and Murray and Walker, not to mention DeRozan as well, with this group. And you know, Walker, I think a lot of times he was just filling in when guys were injured. You know, there wasn't really a great plan to use him. It was just all right, someone's injured, so you you fill in Lonnie and uh so he definitely has some shooting potential you know he likes his jump shots off the dribble um you know really athletic especially getting that right hand he can get out for some big dunks some nice transition dunks even some alley-oops but you know you mentioned the below average finishing in the end and spurs don't have the greatest spacing in the world at times so, I mean, you watch him and you're like, man, this guy really has some physical tools. He can handle the ball a little bit. He's kind of shifty, you know, some shooting potential, but it, he's a long way, you know, it's the Spurs. You know, I mean, I think people just kind of mentally give a boost to any Spurs player. I think, you know, that, that we might be nearing the end of, of that credit for them at this point to, like, give a guy a higher assumed trajectory just because he's on the Spurs. So, I'm... uh Uh, there he's definitely someone to track he's got a lot of raw ability but i don't want to overstate what his capabilities are at this point he certainly was not a player who's contributing to winning in the 1920 season
2: yeah and he was negative on both ends in rpm slight positive on defense in pipm and there's absolutely a chance that lonnie walker becomes a productive player i even think there's a chance he becomes a starter but there are are a lot of nba caliber even elite athletes that don't get all the way there to become overall positive players and so with Walker. I just don't know. And I think there are times where it's important to admit that where I can't I can't necessarily put him in put him in a box, but at a certain point the Spurs are going to have to figure it out there because the rotation will clarify we just don't know exactly when that's going to be.
1: Yeah, as a defender, he he has really good tools. I think when he really sits down and slides, he can do a good job of getting in front of guys, but needs to up his overall intensity yes. and technique, particularly, particularly guarding pick and roll. You know, he's not great at directing the ball where the system tells him to go in pick and roll if you're in some kind of a, an ice coverage or a weak coverage. He's not getting into the ball handler and saying, no, you are only able to go this way. There's a lot of plays where the offensive player is able to get middle when they're clearly in a coverage that's trying to force him baseline um and he's a young player again he had very little experience last year he's been someone who's always had the ball this is we've been such a common theme here of guys need to learn how to play a role particularly defensively particularly as spot up shooters in the nba with these young guards and and he's a someone like that but there's, he's going to be a player to watch. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in the seeding games.
2: The Spurs had two picks in the second half of the second round of the 2019 draft, and both of them spent most of their time in Austin with the G League team. We could start with Lucas Samenich, who averaged 15-8 and eight in 29 minutes per game down there. 56% true shooting. Yeah,
1: 12 shooting. minutes all year, by the way, for the big club. Yes. In case you were wondering.
2: Um, 56% true shooting on 25% usage, but 18.6% turnover rate.
1: Yeah. And that is just enormous. And now they were giving him some leash to explore the studio space. Um, but I mean, we're talking about. Three turnovers a game in 28 minutes a game. I mean, for, and this is a guy who's, you know, he's playing the four, you know, and and he's given some license to do stuff off the dribble. He has an intriguing and versatile skill set, although the concern when he was drafted and this continues is that, you know, he doesn't necessarily have a bread and butter to go to, Um, you know, I mean, I think there are some who kind of thought of him as like little Dario Sharachi, but he doesn't have... That level of toughness or passing ability you know he actually only had 43 assists all year in the g league which is not a, a good number at all i mean that that the assist to turnover ratio was uh not particularly good for him and 31% from three. The jumper looks fine. He shoots a, a set shot. He's pretty aggressive. He'll even take deep threes. He likes those trail threes in transition in particular. Um, he also really likes grabbing and going, but he just turned it over a ton. You know, he just, the number of times that he either just like, got his pocket picked off the dribble Um, some of his turnovers like he's just stepping out of bounds on the sideline as he's trying to drive or traveling before he puts the ball down Uh, he is really an atrocious finisher for his size in the G League 67 out of 136 below 50 percent around the rim in the half court at the G League level which is known for not having a lot of size but the, part of the reason those numbers are so bad is it may not be counted as a turnover but it's counted as a miss when he brings the ball down around the rim a lot as he drives, he's too slow guys are able to stick in and knock it away he's not able to find open guys on those plays um it, it seems like they kind of wanted to develop him into a boris diaw type of mold but he's not that level of passer and i mean even boris diaw when he was fat was a much better athlete than yeah uh samanich At- particularly on the defense
2: athleticism side. is my real concern with samanich because yeah there you have to have so much craft to get over that and we just haven't seen it in the early, early stages there i mean going back to what we summoned the hoop summit it's like yeah he's an intriguing player but can he can he stick it against some of the best athletes in the world and i'm i'm still not there yet now 20 year old not gonna not gonna go crazy and he was the 19th pick but again like i mean i'd I'd rather take some lonnie walker chances than some samanis chances if it were me
1: yeah i I think so and and a few other things you mentioned with the athleticism he just if he gets going towards the basket unopposed, he could get up for a dunk off a of one foot, but zero two-foot explosion whatsoever, that's a big part of his finishing problems as well because he really feels like he has to kind of gather up. And he also would try to get into the post a lot. Again, like you know, he does a lot of different things, and he's got pretty good size, 6'10 or so, but you know, none of the stuff that he was doing in that versatility really seemed to work a lot, and... The post was one thing where he's 22 out of 60 in the post and turned it over on 17 of his possessions. Somehow he shot under 50% on putbacks this year. (laughs) So he really just cannot get off the ground at all or around the basket. And remember, these are
2: G League stats. This isn't against like NBA stars, Right.
1: Right. No, I, I mean, that. that's the key, right? I mean, how many guys his size are there in the G League? There's not that many who have a ton of athleticism. And then, you know, defensively sliding his feet, protecting the rim, it, it's, uh, it's not going to be a plus for him in all likelihood. So this is a really... Tough start. I mean, there's you no know, 25 usage, 56% true shooting, and you're like, hey, well, that's weird. 25% usage, average true shooting, but only at 12.6 PR. Well, yeah, that's because he turns the ball over all the time. And you know, that there is a the thought of, hey, young players, they're trying to explore things. The turnover rate can come down, they can be a lot better. But I'm just especially with the defensive limitations, if this were the Spurs from five years ago and he were a better passer, I'd kind of start to see it a little bit more. But I think my prediction right now is that he's not really going to have much of a career. There's just so many ways that he needs to get a lot better than he is. Um, by contrast, though, I, I thought Keldon Johnson is, is someone that I, I've always liked. I was surprised he fell to number 29, uh, that pick that they got in the Kawhi Leonard deal from Toronto, but I, I thought he showed some things, including looking a little better in some time with the Spurs right as the season was ending, but spent most of his time in Austin.
2: Yeah, he did. Um, so, age 20 season for Keldon Johnson, averaged 20-6 and in 30 minutes per game in Austin. Now, obviously, he played 92 total in San Antonio, so less than 30 minutes per game. Johnson, 6 to th- 63% true shooting on about 27% usage. G League, you can ramp that up a little bit because there just aren't as many, aren't as many players there. Um, and he was Johnson 61% on twos and four free throw attempts per 36. I wish that was a little bit higher, but there are some things that I like about his aggressiveness. And Johnson, the shot's gonna need to come around because only twenty four percent on three point seven threes per 36 minutes. Yeah, and
1: it seems like he operated much more with the ball. Yes at the G league level and he shot it reasonably well at Kentucky. It looks good coming out of his hand. I think his shot's going to come around. I think he's going to be okay there. And this is, Maybe it might take another organization for that to happen potentially. Because again, it's just the way the Spurs are developing these three point shooters is just kind of weird. And it, it seems like they've staked their whole organizational philosophy on what worked for them in the 18 19 season to be a great offense when they were an awesome shooting team. And the only guys, but basically, you're only allowed to shoot threes if you shoot 40% on threes for, for this team, right? And then everyone else is shooting in the mid range. And it seems like they're kind of just trying to replicate that. And I mean, even their announcers will that the guys who can shoot threes shoot threes then everyone else is encouraged to either not shoot or shoot twos or whatever so i don't know i, I didn't have a chance to dig into his film that much to see those three pointers but it's a pretty low number of threes per 36 and i've liked him as a spot-up shooter and i think as a guy who can drive a little bit on closeouts big body not that explosive but he does have quick feet i think he's got decent defensive intensity I, I, i've got hope for him as a, a combo forward And uh, I don't know if he's going to be a defensive playmaker because he doesn't have the athleticism to be a factor in help defense, but I think he could eventually turn into a stopper type with his strength and and quick feet.
2: We could just briefly touch on, uh, on Shimizu Metu, who went to USC and was drafted by the Spurs in 2018. He was the 49th pick. Again... Mostly played in Austin. 18 points and nine rebounds in 29 minutes per game. Did have a strong PER 23 about on 61% true shooting, 26% usage, 38% on 2.9 threes per 36. And a big part of Metu's jump was, you know, the three-point shooting helps, but again, that's low volume. 51% on twos to 58%. And he has enough of a G League sample that we can actually kind of compare the two a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know, it just occurred to me that we've probably, what, done maybe 10 hours of podcasting now on these young players, and we're finishing with Chimizy Metu. And I'm just, I'm having flashbacks to Vegas Summer League, the sixth game of the day, the fluorescent lights beating down on me. It's i've talked with 400 people and the air conditioning is set to 61 degrees and it's 105 outside and i'm just like i i don't know if i can evaluate chim Metu. I, I he's you know he, maybe he could be a backup center someday if you squint hard and he gets a little stronger and maybe the three-point shooting will be something i i don't know I, i'm I, I think i might be out of gas here
2: that's totally fair <laughs> all right that'll do it
1: for us Today and the next time you hear from us, live NBA games in all likelihood. i always got my fingers crossed in these uncertain times, but the schedule will be Thursday night. We will be talking about actual NBA games that count, that happened. Can't wait. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We
0: believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar.